good day to you. This is Bestowing the Brush that you've tuned into, and I'm your host, Dallas Noctigal. Thanks for joining me today. Today's episode is a wrap-up of Season 3 of Bestowing the Brush. I know it was a shorter season than usual, but that's just how life is right now. I know you understand. Today's topics are going to be various, and I'm going to try to keep it pretty short on everything. And then I have some housekeeping to describe at the end, so please stick around till the end because I know you want to hear what I have for you. Number one, we're going to talk about this condition called aphantasia, and this is when your mind's eye is blind. Now, someone on Instagram, and I'm not remembering your name, and I know you're listening, so thank you for this comment that we had a little discussion about. She said, hey, I found out that I have this thing called aphantasia. It's when you cannot conjure a mental image. And she didn't realize that she had this for a while. And she she um, sent me some articles on Instagram to look over. And I've just honestly been so dumbfounded after even reading up on it. And I'm still slightly skeptical. And I, I still cannot understand what's going on here. So maybe you, the listener can help me out here. Tell me if you have a Fantasia once we get into it here. I have a couple articles I'm going to cite. I will also link those in the show notes. Then secondly, we're going to talk about when you're totally distracted. Thirdly, I'm going to talk about when the glory is too much. And I will talk about a drawing done in space by a Russian artist. I'm going to talk about David Livingston and Mary Slessor, but also Lilius Trotter. And all three of those last people that I just mentioned were missionaries. Number four, I will re-mention the lamp post because Adele still is seeking submissions. She will continue to do that and I will give comments about the drawings that you submit to that publication. So please send those to the.lamp.post.newspaper at gmail.com. Everything that she's doing right now is totally email-based. And then fifthly, what I will talk to you about today is what to expect this year from Bestowing the Brush from BTB. Um, I am going to talk about these sort of out of order because that's just how I've had my notes today. <laughs> it's just all over the place. So... This announcement is that this is what you can expect from this year, from Bestowing the Brush. All the content is moving over to my Brush Club newsletter and YouTube. YouTube, that's right. I will not be doing podcast this year. Everything's going to be YouTube. I have a great studio set up right now. I have a great lighting set up just going to roll with that and I'm going to do some really fun things on YouTube that I hope will be relaxing for you. I hope they will be sort of things to think about and interact with. It will, I'm sure, take a very short form and then some of them, I'm hoping to have some critiques. Adele at the Lamppost has agreed that she would let me critique some of the work that came in through that publication. So I think I'll try to do that and I'm not sure how I'll go about that yet as far as splitting my screen and showing you the art and kind of pointing everything out. I'm not sure how that'll all work out yet, but <laughs> I'm going to try that format um, because what I learned with doing the Facilet Club a few years ago was that you guys really, really appreciate critique. You really learn a lot from that and I'm so glad 
It's just that that just takes a lot of time. So I have to kind of invest in who the person is, what age they are, what ability level that they are at. And then I'm able to determine, okay, what comments and con constructive um, advice can I give to this person where they're at? So those are all the things that go into critique and much more. So I, I know you understand that and I'm trying to um, just deliver a little bit a little bit different content on bestowing the brush YouTube channel this year. So I'm going to try that out. Um, but of course, there's just I think some fun drawing exercises that you can do. I would really like to keep things short. But hey, you know what, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So definitely, if you are not yet subscribed to my YouTube channel, please do that and tell all your your homeschool mom friends. Honestly, uh, so many comments on there have been really positive just about how it helps. Um, just to see things, you know, art and drawing, it's primarily visual. So that's one of the reasons why I'm moving the podcast, which is usually just words and concepts and theories and talking about things. I'm going to move that into action oriented content this year. Look forward to that. I will also try, I think, to kind of pair that with some Instagram reels on Instagram Honestly, you guys, I'm just kind of, I'm, so I'm like 25 days, I think, into an Instagram break right now, which has been really great because it's just, it's one less task thing off of my to-do list, but it's something that I really enjoy. I love, love having conversations with you, connecting with you, showing you concepts, um, showing you kind of like how we work things out in our school times and stuff. I really enjoy that, but it does take a lot of time. And so all the time that I spend on Instagram leaves me less time to get on the podcast here, to write newsletters, and to get YouTube content out. And seriously, YouTube is like, it's kind of, I'm not complaining, but I'm just saying it's really hard. It's really hard to you want your YouTube content to be the best because if you didn't know this, YouTube is the second largest search engine on the internet. So what that means is that what I try to do is I try to put in um, what they call SEO, search engine optimization. So that means I try to put keywords into my descriptions so that when people are searching for things on YouTube, they can find what they need easily through phrases that I've used in the description. Hopefully all the time, I mean, I don't need to go through all those hoops technically, but I do wanna make it easy for people like you and people like your friends to find the great content that I provide through bestowing the brush. And you know, even besides like planning out the videos, filming the videos, editing the videos, producing the videos and publishing the videos, <laughs> that's, that's all involved. So I'm kind of working on how to organize that in my daily schedule, which then brings me to the point actually about Deep Work, the book that I've been reading by Cal Newport. He's been really helpful with helping me understand my own distractedness and I think you probably had this phenomena happen in 2020 and 2021 lots of things went online it, almost everyone was online doing zoom calls all the time connecting online just a ton of emails from businesses that you frequented or doctor's offices where you're scheduling appointments doing things all online which is great I'm really thankful for 
the technical ability to do that the technology that we have is amazing however it really does lead to a lot of distraction if you're not careful about it so I'm trying to kind of take a few steps back in my work habits to become a little bit less undistracted and more prone to deep work versus shallow work shallow work is like work that anybody can do more is administrative tasks more things like checking emails doing customer service and less of actually diving into research and coming up with productive creative material whether that be lessons or paintings or drawings or things that I want to do just for my own practice that's what I'm working on right now and I'm going to get into the book a little bit why deep work well I was drawn to this book first of all because the cover of the book is bright yellow and black and very the typeface is really bold and I was like wow that's that's catching my eye deep work what is this okay so I'm going to I'm going to pull out three ideas or quotes from Cal's book to talk about here. One of the main things that I've gotten is just this time blocking concept, which this isn't the first time I've heard that. My husband and I have talked about time blocking and how having certain hours of the day reserved for certain activities is very helpful as long as you can kind of stick to that, maintain that habit. But also Cal Newport in the book talks about having time for the shallow work because you really do you have to answer emails you need to do customer service or I like to do customer service because it helps you um, with your your problems if you are experiencing checkout problems on Gumroad or you don't know what paints to buy or you're not sure how this is working in your homeschool life this is uh, the things that need to happen but it needs to happen besides and in a different time slot than the deep work now I think I'm pretty sure John Mirlaz and many many other artists have talked have talked about the like getting into the flow and I'm doing air quotes here flow that is you kind of getting into this rest time where I'm sure it's like your blood pressure lowers you're starting to think about things beyond just the next task that you need to do, getting maybe a little philosophical, getting into a place where you're really zoned in on what you're doing. And that happens in hour to three hour to four hour long chunks. That's not, okay, I'm working on this for 15 minutes, take a break, address the problem, oh, you know, my child needs this over here. I need, I've already been waylaid by this problem over here. You cannot get into deep work unless you have some actual time concerted set aside for it. So, I mean, time is precious. And I'm realizing that every more each day that time is precious. And if I don't tell myself what I need to be doing in this amount of time, I am liable to waste that time. I just am. I am really lazy, you guys. I know a lot of you think I'm really productive and I'm like on it. <laughs> I'm really not. I am like a a lazy lazy person. <laughs> and I'm trying to trying to change that. So I don't want to be a slave to my work or school or the demands of others. 
and I want to be a good steward of what God's given me. Um, congregations in my church have turned from young children to teens in the years of this pandemic. And it's just, it's crazy to watch because I'm literally watching the time go so fast in front of my eyes. It's best for everything to just have its own time and its place. All right, preaching session over there. You know, and of course, when do I get to paint just for my own sort of body of work? I don't know. <laughs> I may ne- I may not be in that season of life right now. I feel I'm solidly in the teaching artist portion of my career right now, and I'm really okay with that. I really enjoy teaching, clarifying my thoughts through putting them into words and putting them into lessons. I think it's really valuable for you and me. I mean, it's good for all of us. Anyway, what I'm saying is getting into something three hours at a time is really unheard of at this point in my life. We'll see. I'm going to start small. I've been wanting to practice with some materials non-traditionally just to figure it out. What I have done in the past is I go on YouTube and I really try to figure out, okay, how do I use gouache? How do I use watercolor? How do other people do it? Well, sometimes you got to just get into something on your own to figure out what it does. And so sometimes I like to get into the research and then do it based on that. But sometimes I just like to go for it. So hopefully I'll be doing a little bit of that. Okay, what's next? Real quick, I'll just define what he says is shallow work. It's non-cognitively demanding logistical style tasks often performed while distracted. These efforts tend not to create much new value in the world and they are easy to replicate. So like I said, it's not a bad thing. These things all need to be done, but it's, it's not creative work. Another thing he's talked about that I've really gotten a lot from is this concept of looking at things instead of for their any benefit what he describes that as is like okay people stay on Facebook because they like to connect with their friends from childhood elementary school high school they like to see what everybody's doing they are you know they're in like a cyclist group and want to stay connected with whoever they're working with in their community I forget what he calls it but it's like keeping the vital few things that you actually need to do so He goes through, I think, three steps where you actually think about if I were to leave social media or leave Facebook for 30 days, would anybody really notice? Would anybody actually care that much? Um, You know, and that's everyone's going to have a different answer for that question. I don't have an answer for that question for you. I know that I don't use it very much. I usually am just pushing Instagram posts to Facebook and then probably checking it once a week or so. I do like to be in the know about church ministry stuff and bestowing the brush stuff and family members. So that part of quitting at least Facebook would be pretty hard. However, I could probably get to the point where I'd like to do that or at least scrub the account of pictures that I don't really need to have everyone in the internet see, you know, it's a privacy thing, right? Now, I think there's a balance there too, because many of you I've gotten to become internet friends with on Instagram. I think that's totally valid and really important for helping you 
I would not be able to help as many people with art classes, with drawing concepts, if it weren't for Instagram and Facebook. It's kind of a something I'm thinking about. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. But one other fun thing too, he has some really good memory exercises in there for just expanding your intellectual capacity. Uh, the last part of this chapter is talking about memorizing a deck of cards as an intellectual exercise. This has never been something that I've been interested in doing at all, but I, I really see the value in it. I see the value in just expanding your capacity in that way so that you'll you're able to use your memory better in other ways. So what he says to do is through each card in the deck, you can think of it as however you want to order them in your mind. But the way to do it is that we think in stories and experiences. We, we cannot just memorize rote facts and call them up whenever we want. We tend to learn memory things through experiences and stories what he says to do is to walk through several rooms of your house and start assigning certain cards to objects that are in the same place in your house in each room for example walking through the front door could be the ace of hearts the king of hearts could be the table that has the plants on it to the right and then kind of however logically you move through your house and a thing that you see usually right off the bat or what's a prominent thing in the room is those things you need to assign through the cards. You can do this with anything too. For example, I have really struggled to memorize my license plate for whatever reason. So I tried small. I mean, 52 cards in a deck is a lot of memorization. So I thought... I'm going to do the seven or eight characters on my license plate. So I did that and I think it has worked. I think it has worked uh, really well. And what you can do is if, if the name of the card has the same sound or name or you can easily associate a number with that object, the better because that way it'll solidify that in your mind. So I thought that was pretty cool. Maybe you can try that on your own, but I would say pick up a copy of this book if you're more interested in these concepts. Cal also has a podcast, which I think is called Deep Questions, and I think he's um, writing his third book right now. I was told by someone on Instagram that a similar book is called The Shallows, and she was retelling me some great information from that too. But whatever these things involve, I think it's really worth thinking about how we're thinking these days because we have the internet, because we have all these technological things, because Mark Zuckerberg is creating the metaverse. I think we need to take a step back and think about how we're thinking and using our minds. What skills are we losing? What, what things can we totally do without? And how can we not form... How can we not form bad habits right now? It's kind of how I'm thinking about it. But you tell me what you think. I've talked a lot now. Email me at bestowingthebrush at gmail.com. I'm still frequently checking my email. Although I'm turning two pages to the right with where I am in the book. And the heading for this section is called B. 
become hard to reach. Uh, this was within his chapter on quitting social media. At this time, that's not the plan, of course, but something to think about. Speaking of deeply working, if you would like to be deeply working on your drawing skills, and if you're a family or a student wanting to learn how to draw and paint at home, go check out my courses. My beginner course, Brush, Chalk, and Charcoal, Foundations in Drawing, is a wonderful course. It's 33 videos. There are student, of course, lessons within that, and they go over brush drawing, charcoal drawing, and visual concepts, but it also has a packet for just the teacher to get oriented and help your mindset before you work on this stuff with your kids. This is my most popular course. People love it. And especially moms of six and seven year olds, they email me the most saying how helpful this course is. Their students really engage with it. The lessons are very short. Most of them are under 10 minutes long and we get right to the point. And I also go over really important stuff that a beginner should know, like how to clean up and how to take care of your art materials. So all around, it's just a really wonderful beginner course. In fact, Rachel wrote to me and said, I just wanted to let you know how helpful your course has been this year. She has four kids in forms 3, 2A, 1A, and 1B, and she has a newborn. Uh, she did the brushwork videos over the first two terms. She mixed in other watercolor assignments between videos, like painting illustrations of their reading or doing nature journal entries. But this term, they are doing the charcoal lessons, which they love. She said that the course helped them get over the initial hump of doing art at home. And after a year, she's seen them drawing, painting, and molding what's in their imaginations and what they observe in a delightful way. You're welcome, Rachel. I'm so glad to hear that. Now the intermediate course, which is called Brush, Chalk, and Charcoal, Framing Your World. It's just that. It's a continuation of this beginner course. Uh, we go over many more types of media, but it's in an introductory type of way. I have videos going over colored pencils, how to do thumbnail sketches, how to measure what you're seeing, lots of visual concepts in those. We go over gesture drawing, landscape drawing, drawing a tree from observation, but we, we do start um, small from what you learned in the basic techniques from all the brush drawing and the charcoal videos from the beginner course. And it just nicely eases you into the process of figuring out the other media that you can use, heavily, heavily stressing the art of seeing. And that's what I'm all about here. Drawing is 99% learning how to see. So that is really my main goal is to teach you how to see the world, how to get it on your paper. So if you're not ready for courses yet, definitely subscribe to the YouTube channel since I'll be doing that this year. Sign up for the newsletter. It's just right there on the homepage on my website. Scroll down. It's the Brush Club newsletter. It's not a drip feed of stuff. You get sometimes two a month, maybe, and maybe three if I'm promoting a launch or something like that, but usually one to two. Lastly... I would just like to ask you to pray for us as we try to run our businesses here at Noctical Enterprises. As you know, supply chain issues 
are giving us hard times on physical the good stuff with Kingsfell. And we are working out ways to mitigate that. And if you follow my husband, Kingsfell Dice on Instagram, I'm sure you've been in the loop with all of the uh, things that he's doing to mitigate all that and finding new formulas for resins and and silicone and all the things that we need to make molds and small plastic products there. But it's a hard thing to do. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Owning your own businesses and for us to start all this pretty much at the beginning of the COVID situation, it's just been nuts. It's just been totally nuts. I'm thankful for it. It's a great challenge. I'm learning a lot, but do pray for us. All right. So what we were talking about before, this concept of aphantasia, when your mind's eye is blind. The first article I'm going to read from, and you can hear me scrolling. This is from theconversation.com. The headline of the article is The Art of Aphantasia, How Mind-Blind Artists Create Without Being Able to Visualize. So first of all, when I heard of this, as the friend of mine on Instagram reached out and told me about it, I thought, is this for real? Seriously, is this for real? This this sounds so, so out there. So Glenn Keane, the Oscar-winning artist behind Disney classics like The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, Keane's mind is blank. He has no preconception of what he draws. And this is because he has aphantasia. Aphantasia is a recently identified variation of human experience affecting 2 to 5% of the population. Who knew? I don't know this. Uh, in which a person is unable to generate mental imagery. Perhaps surprisingly, Keen is not alone in being a visual artist who cannot visualize. When aphantation was named and publicized, a number of creative practitioners, including artists, designers, and architects, contacted the researchers to say that they too had no mind's eye. Intrigued by the seemingly counterintuitive notion, they gathered a group of these people together and curated an exhibition of their work. So the article asks, how is it then that a person like Keen can draw a picture of Ariel without a mental picture to guide him? And that's exactly my question. What in the world? How do you do this? Knowing versus picturing. They're saying the first point to consider is that there is a difference between knowing or remembering what something looks like and then generating a mental image of that thing. To draw it, you only need to know how it looks or would look. But my question is here, pausing, but if you're thinking about what something would look like, doesn't that mean that you are referring to a mental image in your mind that you're referring to? I don't know. I'm still skeptical. Reading on. As the psychologist of art Rudolf Arnheim noted, a draftsperson working from memory may deny convincingly that he has anything like an explicit picture of the object in his mind. Yet, as he works, the correctness of what he is producing on paper is judged and modified according to some standard in the mind. And I'm asking again, does this mean remembering? According to some standard in the mind, I would think that would mean 
remembering a mental image. If we look here at the definition here on Google, so I mean, can we really trust Google? I don't know, but bear with me. Remember is have in or be able to bring to one's mind an awareness of someone or something that someone has seen, known, or experienced in the past. Seen, known, or experienced in the past, in the past, and to be able to bring that to your mind. With that definition in mind, going back to the article, we found that aphantasics retain such standards. MX, the subject of the first case study of acquired aphantasia, could give detailed descriptions of scenes and landmarks around his native Edinburgh. I can remember visual details, he commented, but I can't see them. Aphantasia prevents the generation of mental images based on knowledge of what things look like. But it does not prevent that knowledge serving as the basis for an image made with pencil and paper. Keen can draw a picture of Ariel because he knows what humans and fish look like. And that information, plus the skills acquired through study and practice, steers his hand accordingly. I'm still not understanding. Knowing implies that he's making a mental image of that, right? Okay, seeing versus imagining. Another seemingly obvious but important point is that whereas mental visualization takes place entirely within the brain, drawing is a particularly external act. Yes, I would agree with that. Taking place in front of the artist's eyes. When you draw, you perceive the marks you make. Each change, perceived, suggests the next in a feedback loop. You don't have to imagine, is what this article is saying. Many of the aphantasic artists we spoke to emphasize this aspect of their creative process. They would need to get something down on the paper or canvas or even start with a pre-existing image, which they can then alter, erase, or add to. When Keen draws Ariel, he begins with what he calls an explosion of scribbles. Then he highlights and subtracts lines until he can find the form that he wants. I'm thinking of gesture drawing here. If you're trying to come up with something from your imagination, I would think that it would start with a lot of scribbles and a lot of erasing. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Maybe that is not how everyone works, but I like scribbling. And then he goes on to say that designing the beast of Beauty and the Beast was a similar process of trial and error. The way that aphantagics like Keen work challenges the stereotype of the creative artist that has held sway over Western culture for centuries at least since the Renaissance biographer Giorgio Vasari declared that the greatest geniuses are searching for inventions in their minds, forming those perfect ideas which their hands then express. And Vasari was referring to Leonardo da Vinci, and his comments show how we have come to think of the artistic creativity as being an internal capacity, the fruits of which are simply reproduced in the outside world. The artist of genius is distinguished by the richness of their mental conceptions as much as their artworks. But there are historical reasons for the stereotype. Career-minded Renaissance artists wanting to define themselves against the craftsman and his rule-following manual labor, for one. And while there are individuals who, experiencing vivid imagery, do mentally preconceive their artworks, Keen and his fellow aphantasics show 
that the creative process can just as easily begin with and depend upon the material of world around them. What do you think? I am still not convinced at this point. I am not doubting that the person who reached out to me has this. It's kind of like when you meet someone who has a completely different personality than you and maybe you're friends with them or you just you're, you're you've encountered them and you're getting to know them better when they describe their thinking process to you it's just so far beyond your own thinking process that it's like do you really think that way I mean we are so I think we're just so self-centered that we just don't think that other people can think different ways than us that's my opinion there's another article about it here and this one is scientific american this is in the neuroscience category when the mind's eye is blind in 2003 a 65 year old man brought a strange problem to neurologist adam zeman the patient later dubbed mx and and that's who the other article was talking about as well claimed he could not conjure images of friends family members or recently visited places all his life, M.X., a retired surveyor, had loved reading novels and had routinely drifted off to sleep, visualizing buildings, loved ones, and recent events. But after undergoing a procedure to open arteries in his heart, which he probably suffered a minor stroke, his mind's eye went blind. He could see normally, but he could not form pictures in his mind. Okay, so we have a little bit more information on how this happened. He did have a mind's eye before this procedure, then he didn't. Zeman had never encountered anything like it, and he set out to learn more. He has since given the condition a name, aphantasia, and then phantasia means imagination in Greek, as it says, and he and others are exploring its neurological underpinnings. Zeman and his colleagues began their analysis by testing MX's visual imagination in several ways. Compared with control subjects, MX scored poorly on questionnaires assessing the ability to produce visual imagery. Surprisingly, though, he was able to accomplish tasks that typically involve visualization. For example, when asked to say which is a lighter color of green, grass, or pine trees, most people would decide by imagining both grass and tree and comparing them. MX correctly said that pine trees are darker than grass, but he insisted that he had used no visual imagery to make the decision. I just know the answer, he said. He also did fine on a test of the ability to rotate objects mentally. He was shown two pictures of three-dimensional objects and was asked to say if they were the same item, pictured before and after being rotated on its axis or different objects. Yet in contrast to the control group, he took longer to decide, and the time he took did not depend on the degree of rotation. In most people, the more the objects differ in their orientation, the longer it takes to mentally rotate them to see if they might match up. He underwent some functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, and under this, it's said that the visual regions showed very little activity when he was asked to visualize a person, a place, or an object. And whereas those responsible for decision-making and error prediction were more active. So that's interesting. The findings suggested that MX used a different strategy than the controls 
did when tackling the visualization tasks. Then the article has a couple paragraphs about how um, there were some sort of indications in the 1800s of some research that was going on about this. Not much. It really didn't boom until 2010 after Zeman's team published the study of MX. Zeman and two colleagues then had 21 respondents answer questionnaires about their visual experiences, including one known as the Vividness of Visual Imagery Questionnaire, the VVIQ. They published the findings in 2015 using the name aphantasia for the first time. Most of the 21 said they realized only in adolescence and early adulthood through conversations or reading that other people could call up images in their mind. And although many of the respondents had dreams or flashes of visual imagery while awake, all were substantially or completely unable to purposefully call up images in their mind, such as of past vacations or even their own wedding. Since 2015, aphantasia has become the subject of newspaper articles, television reports, blogs, and podcasts. Facebook entry by American software developer Blake Ross, who helped to develop the Firefox browser, has been making the rounds. In it, Ross, too, describes his inability to create visual images, and several thousands have filled out the VVIQ, thanks in part to its posting by the BBC. It and other questionnaires are also posted at the Eyes Mind webpage. Based on the first 700 or so surveys, Zeman estimates that aphantasia affects about 2% of the population. These people had found it hard to describe in words their inability to visualize when they tried to explain they were often met with incomprehension. Sorry, that's me. I'm one of those people. Zeman was astonished at how grateful these people were to know that other people were just like them. I want to know, do you have this? And I guess I'm I'm sorry if I offended you. I just it's just this shocking realization that this even is a condition. That's it. That's all I'm saying. Definitely read these articles. This one is Scientific American and then the other is on the conversation. That's weird, huh? Isn't it? I'm just thinking I don't have this problem. Apparently other people do. And so I'm wondering if this is going to change some of the ways that I teach or if I know that somebody has aphantasia, what will be some of my strategies to help them, you know, do memory drawings? I was, I was asked by this person who sent me these articles, what do you think? Is there anything I can do to improve the skill? And I mean, I have no experience with this at all, but I just thought, maybe doing some memory memory drawing exercises could help I don't know it's almost like I feel like those neurons are they could just be locked up and they need to like be fired back up again I'm not sure I really I have no idea this is it's so perplexing to me but um I guess you can still have consolation that the guy who created the character Ariel and Beauty and the Beast the beast, uh, he had it too. So, I mean, we can do these things, maybe just take out a piece of paper, start scribbling around and start detracting, subtracting with your eraser and try to make something look, I guess, put your thinking down on paper first and don't try to pre-conjure images. See what happens. I don't know. Get back to me. 
the last topic I said I was going to talk about is when the glory is too much. And really what I'm talking about here is seeing something so beautiful and breathtaking and so different that you just cannot help but draw it. So all of the people that I mentioned before, uh, the missionaries David Livingstone, Mary Slessor, and Lilius Trotter, I recently read all of their, well, versions of their biographies, and at some point in all of their stories, they either wished they could draw so they could show someone else this beautiful new land that they'd been to, or they actually knew how to draw. Like David Livingstone has field journals, and I, I think I've looked them up a couple times, but just his, like, he would just go out and in the field he would sketch out the plants so that he knew what plant life there was he took a record of everything and it was more for um he, he was publishing some stuff and I think it was for National Geographic but his contributions to science and geology were pretty cool and of course Lilius Trotter too you've heard me talk about her she was first a painter she studied under John Ruskin for a while and then she went to an Arab country and did mission work there and she painted the people she painted the places this is it's just something we do we reflect what God made we reflect God's glory and even though we are imperfect reflectors it's still an urge that we have and I think it's worth doing and in fact the more that I do this the more that I draw and paint and try things the more I met with my inability <laughs> to do those things, it definitely does not uh, inflate my ego at all. If anything, I feel like I'm more humbled each time I try to approach something and draw something realistically. I'm like, gosh, I just didn't do it justice. And I know you've all been there. You've wanted to take a picture of a sunset or a sunrise, and it's just not the same. But the last article I'm talking about here is theguardian.com. This is the first picture drawn in space to appear in a cosmonauts show in London. And I found out about this from the Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green. That's another podcast and I think he just wrote the book too. Same title. And uh, this is this is the first piece of art created in space. And the man who did it was Alexei Leonov. He used pencils and paper. And this is pretty cool. If you look at this article, it has a picture of the pencils and the paper that he used to create it. It's cool because the pencil pack, of course, had to be designed to be operated in zero gravity. So it has a bracelet clip that would clip onto his, his arm and then a box to contain the pencils and each of the pencils has a little rope tied around it so that it wouldn't float away or that they could float around and he could just retrieve the one that he needed. And Alexei Lenov was a trained artist, or at least he liked doing that. I don't know how well trained he was, but this what, what inspired him to do this first drawing was seeing an orbital sunrise for the first time. He had gone out of his spacecraft to be away from the um, the capsule he was in, connected by that rope out in space, floating around and watched the sun come up over the edge of the earth 
for the first time. That's called an orbital sunrise. And he was just so taken away by how beautiful it was that the first thing he wanted to do was draw it. No matter what your skill level is, you were still designed to reflect beauty, to tell back about it, to show other people how imperfect it may be. This drawing is, I mean, it's pretty rudimentary and also he did it in space. So give him some grace, you guys, but it's, it's pretty accurate. It's what an orbital sunrise looks like. And he now has this mental image just cemented in his mind. He'll probably never forget this moment. I mean, how could you? You're in space. Unforgettable. Um, the whole, the, I do recommend you go listen to that podcast, The Anthropocene Reviewed. This one was called Orbital Sunrise. Listen to that. Read these articles. Really, really neat stuff. I hope this episode was easy to follow, even though I was ping-ponging around a bit. Merry Christmas if you are listening to this on or right after publishing day. I'm signing off for the year, so I hope you have a wonderful celebration and an end of your year. May 2022 bring us all closer to God and closer to each other. As always, keep calm and charcoal on.